Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined today every Tuesday and Friday by Daniel Foch, but it's not just the two of us today, is it, Dan? No, we are fortunate enough to have some guests here that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. And they go by the names of Conrad Speckert and Samantha Eby. And they have created, with the help of a lot of other people in the uh, design, architecture, and planning industry, an incredible resource for investors like ourselves and for anybody who's really trying to advance housing and real estate in Canada, but more specifically Toronto. So Conrad Speckert is an intern architect at LGA Architectural Partners in Toronto, and rehousing is a collaboration led by Professor Michael Piper at the University of Toronto's Daniels Faculty of Architecture and Joe, or sorry, Jana Levitt of LGA Architectural Partners in Toronto. Samantha Ebby is a self-described architect and researcher investigating alternative housing models that can provide non-market housing. And you'll find a lot of these kind of new terms that they've created, such as- They're very good at branding. They're good at branding. branding. So I'd encourage everyone, uh, whether before, during, or after you listen to this episode, go check out rehousing.ca. Rehousing. Dan, tell us a bit about what they're actually doing there. Yeah. So rehousing is a research project that explores how to convert single family homes into multi-unit housing. And if you've been listening, if you listen to like one other episode on this show, (laughs) you know that we are very into this idea. But the idea is to use affordable common sense design and yield high quality, well-designed spaces for the residents. And, you know, obviously a passion project and and um, very socially minded against uh, the backdrop of a housing crisis. And, and I think the work that they're doing is going to have exceptional impact for uh, housing creators as investors, but also through things like co-ownership um, and other financial innovations that, um, that will help kind of grow the missing middle, middle housing stock. So they basically created this housing catalog and it has like 50 plans for the 13 most common house types in Toronto. I would love to see a Vancouver one because Vancouver literally has one house type that Vancouver hey, special. On, no, there's, yeah. more, there's more than that. But I think it would be, you know, this concept would be so easily scalable to other places. And I think, you know, coast to coast, it would be a really cool thing to, but, but also worth noting that these housing types are probably the most common housing types in Canada as sure. well. Yeah. And so all of the stuff, the work that they've done could very easily be scaled. It's, it's actually so cool. Like you go on the site and it, you look at a house and you've been like, I, I've seen that house. There's five That's of them on the street. I grew up in that house. It's my known as house. And then it shows you how to put yeah. multiple units into that house. Live in like a, in like a rendered, yeah. like, like yeah. a motion graphic. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Um, and, and so basically they're currently applying the research and collaborations with nonprofit housing creators, development advisors, and the city of uh, Toronto's planning group, which is EHON. They mentioned it a couple of times in the show, which stands for expanding housing options in neighborhoods. And that's basically the group who pushes for policy change to do just that, expand housing options in neighborhoods in Toronto. So this whole thing, rehousing, is a collaboration between the University of Toronto, Tough Lab, and LGA Architectural Partners. The partnership brings together structured design research methods with practice-based knowledge to address real-world problems. So without further ado, let's get into it. 
Samantha Conrad, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, before we get into rehousing and and all the great stuff that you guys are doing, why don't we just start things off by um, Samantha, ladies first? Maybe tell us a bit, little bit about yourself, Conrad, and then you can, and then we'll dive into some of the amazing work uh, that you guys are doing. Sounds good. Uh, so my name is Samantha Eby. I'm a licensed architect and research associate at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I also teach at both the School of Architecture at U of C and at Waterloo. And I've been the project manager of rehousing for the last two years. Awesome. And we will get very deep into what rehousing is uh, as soon as we hear from Conrad. So Conrad, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and then we'll uh, we'll dive right in. Sure. Uh, my name is Conrad Speckert. I'm uh, an intern architect at uh, an office in Toronto called LJ Architectural Partners. And uh, yeah, last year, um, Sam and I collaborated uh, as being sort of project managers for the rehousing project. Um, and I've got uh, definitely a history of being interested in building code and, and zoning reform issues. Uh, yes, two hot topics these days, building code and zoning reform issues. <laughs> to be fair, I do think Conrad has made one specific component of the building code pretty popular on Twitter. So we can get to that later. But um, love it. OK, well, before be we careful, get to the... he might not shut up if you get him going. Yeah, okay, don't, don't, don't go there too like soon, guys. Before the end then. And, uh, and then we can. Talk I'm going to put your, your listeners to sleep if we go there too quick. <laughs> Okay, well, in an effort to keep everyone awake for the first little bit here, why don't we start things off? Uh, here's a sweeping question. What is rehousing? Uh, so rehousing is a research project that is a collaboration between Tough Lab uh, at the University of Toronto and LGA Architectural Partners uh, and our site, rehousing.ca, uh, has been formatted as a guide looking at providing non-professionals with the information that they need to pursue multiplex development. Amazing. You, it's like you practiced that summary once or twice before. Um, Done it so, a few times. <laughs> so you mentioned like the, the more non-professional and you use the term citizen developers on the website. Um, so who is this concept meant for? Like who, who are you really targeting here? And then what would be the, the targeted impact um, as a result of presenting them with this this design? Yeah. So I think like part of the intention of reaching out to non-professionals or people that we call citizen developers really comes from, well, this new zoning change that happened in 2013 opens up huge potential for impact of the introduction of new housing in the city. Historically, in Toronto, we've relied on for-profit large-scale developers to deliver our housing. And that this kind of project really isn't something that they are interested in or are feasible, uh, is feasible for them to pursue. And so if we want to take advantage of the opportunity that these new zoning rules have opened up, we need to empower a whole group of people who traditionally don't take part in development. And so we're interested in this concept of the citizen developer. Uh, we use citizen to describe someone who is actively involved in the shaping of their community. We want to be kind of inclusive with our definition. And so it's not related to legal or um, political boundaries. Uh, but the idea is this is for people who are looking for a more secure form of housing for themselves uh, through the creation of units. And so we're talking about people who want to age in place, downsizers, uh, home buyer groups who are looking for access to the market, 
multi-generational households who are looking for a kind of housing that just doesn't exist out there. And so they need to uh, be empowered to make housing that suits their needs. And that's kind of the the root of the goal of the project is to um, give people the tools and knowledge to pursue a kind of development that allows them to create types of units that they actually want uh, within the market. Yeah, I, I love it. I'm I encourage everyone who who's listening or or if you are one of the 10 people that watches our stuff on YouTube, um the we we've got the website open right now. It's rehousing.ca and I got to say the the graphic that I'm watching transform alone is is super cool. So you basically got like a wartime bungalow with a garage pictured here. The garage morphs into what looks like a modern, sleek, possibly duplex laneway home. The bungalow, a basement's created, and then a side addition's created, and then it goes to like a four-story mixed use. So I just love it. I love the way you guys have done that and, and kind of catalog the different housing types. And that's the next question I'd like to ask is, can we walk through the housing types that you have in your so-called catalog and, and maybe even some of the prices, if possible? You guys have categorized them in a low, medium, and high, and new Um can you just kind of walk us through what, what each one of those means and, and why? Yeah. Uh, so there's two categorizations. I'm, I'll start with a kind of intro to this, and then I think I'll throw this to Conrad. Um, we started with the idea of finding the most typical houses in Toronto. And so through a kind of survey, identified 13 common home types that are repeated across the city. And those are actually um, most significantly categorized by the age that they were built. So you find the kind of pre-war and interwar uh, in the downtown area. If you actually just scroll down to the bottom of this page, there's a map that locates each of them. Um, And then there's the kind of post-war belt. um, And then there's the Metro Burb, which is post-1967. And so within each of those, it was important for us to provide different levels of intervention to be accessible for the most number of people. And that's where the high, medium, and low came in. Maybe Conrad can jump in there. Yeah. One of the other things that was interesting when we started to map this out across the city and and sort of the reason there are different shades of orange there is um, different time periods because a lot of the lots more downtown and and older um, subdividing of the lots mean that they're narrower. They were also built um, sort of before the dominance of cars. And so the, the presence of garages, the width of the lots and, and the, um, the configuration of the existing buildings uh, is a lot more dense. And then the, the sort of medium tone of orange, the, the projects that were built after World War II, 60s, 70s, uh, post-war generation, those tended to be houses that had really low lot coverage on bigger lots, uh, sometimes, you know, detached garages, a lot of room for parking, um, and kind of around that time when sprawl was was really prevalent. And then there's the third generation of more recent housing that tends to be um you know, larger houses that take up more of the more of the lot have sort of attached garages. And once we realized that, we realized that the way you would densify or, or sort of convert this into multiplexes is really different based on what you've got to work with. And sometimes, you know, to tear down a two-story house to, to then build a three-story multiplex might not be the most effective use of, of resources, um, both materials and, and money. Um, and so that's why we started to break things up between low, medium, high, and new, which is really low we defined as 
subdividing the existing building. Uh, so no kind of expanded footprint. But if you're an empty nester that, you know, has a, has a four bedroom house and you're only really using half of that floor area, how could you reconfigure it? Medium is um, small additions, uh, you know, permissions for things like garden suites and laneway suites. Uh, high looks at doing a lo looks at doing a bunch of things. Uh, I think high is really interesting because you can start to see how you would face stuff over time as you have enough money to do things expand. And then the new scenario is always the one that just assumes sort of carte blanche um, demolition of the existing building and new construction of the maximum size building that you're allowed uh, based on the new zoning that we have for multiplexes. Just one thing I think to add to that, something that was really important to us uh, coming at this from the design perspective, because uh, all of our kind of core members of the team are uh, trained as architects and designers is to bring this idea and knowledge of phasing in. And so each of the schemes from low to high are designed to build on uh, the previous version. So the idea that you could move into a house or minimal budget converted into a three unit multiplex. And then down the road, once you built up equity and are able to refinance, you can go back in and kind of make more substantial changes without having to redo work that you did in the first phase. And so I think that's important from both a financial perspective um, and also a material perspective. So you're not paying uh, to throw things in the garbage like five years down the road. Yeah, human beings are wasteful enough. So anything we can do to kind of get rid of that, I think is is good and, and bonus points for it being budget friendly. Mm -hmm. So I, I noticed that you, and I don't know if this was by design, but I would assume that it is since you're all design professionals. I noticed that you chose the color yellow for your branding. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with um, something called the yellow belt. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a, uh, because we've tried to explain it a couple of times on the show, but we're, we're uh, I guess, like small cap investor, realtor, mortgage broker guys. And so we probably are under we're not super event. interested in we're very interested in it we're just not we're not exceptionally qualified to discuss it so yeah what is the all about why has it been so restrictive on growth in in a city like toronto uh, so i'll start with just a brief introduction of what the yellow belt is and then i'll let conrad kind of i think drive into the details of why it's been so restrictive uh, but the yellow belt is a term that was coined by an urban planner named gil meslin and i believe it was 2016 and it speaks to all of the land in the city that was zoned for low-rise residential. And so if you were to look at a zoning map, um, which is essentially how planners have codified the city to determine where you can build what, uh, the color on that map for low-rise residential, which includes um, single-family houses, semis, townhouses and some multi-unit, primarily in the downtown area, uh, is yellow. And so what you have is this wash of yellow that makes up nearly 50% of the land in Toronto, where until previously, on the vast majority of that, you were only allowed to build one unit plus a secondary suite um, per lot. And so the new zoning that has come in has said everywhere that is that yellow on the map, you are now allowed to build four units. Uh, in the main house, and then one unit if it qualifies for a garden suite or laneway suite. So we basically opened up 50% of the land to double the density that was previously allowed. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I just thought it was a karate term for for quite a while, but uh, this makes a lot more sense. Sorry, go ahead, Conrad. 
Well, there's a there's a professional planner that's pretty well known on Twitter and certainly in the city. He actually owned a yellow belt uh, that I think he would wear to sort of committee of adjustment meetings uh, when he had projects in those neighborhoods. And uh, in last or when they changed the zoning bylaw, uh, he posted on Twitter that he's going to throw it in the garbage because he no longer needs it. Um, so it does have a bit of a legend to it. Yeah, that's Sean. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. But what's, what I think was interesting was when we started this project, we we actually were informed by what the city was sort of proposing with the, the city planning department's created a team called EHON, which is an acronym for Expanding Housing Options in Neighborhoods. And they had started to publish sort of draft proposals on how what rezoning might be in terms of allowing four units on a lot. But at the time, they hadn't started to specify, you know, what building height, uh, what floor areas, what building depth, what setbacks, all the sort of technical terms and and things that beyond just the concept of four units would actually determine whether or not this could work, whether or not anyone will actually be able to do this. Um, and so we started to look at those questions um, and look at what other cities, uh, you know, Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, other cities in Canada had already done. And what's kind of crazy is actually since... Uh, the city of Toronto has now allowed four units. Uh, the federal government and its its funding through the Housing Accelerator Fund and and things like that has actually been going around essentially to municipalities across the country and saying, you know, catch up. Yeah, yeah. Lo- well, I love that. Love to hear that. So, I mean, look, we're living in volatile times, right? Inflation is up, rates are up, housing is in you know crisis mode. There's been some policy changes that have that have helped, right? And numerous policy changes from removal of uh, of HST to um, sorry GST and uh, and you know the new mortgage backed bonds that are specifically for for building. Have you guys seen adoption? Like, what what has the interest been like in something like this? I know you're not the ones out there actually constructing. You're not general contractors or developers. But have you been have, have developers been reaching out to you? Have you know as you as you guys have coined the term, have citizen yeah. developers been reaching out to you? Tell tell us about that. So definitely, I mean, I think we uh, we presented some of this work at a like co housing co ownership conference last year um, that was run by a group of real estate agents in the city who are really interested in kind of matchmaking for. Uh, people who want to buy properties together to live in. And there was a kind of big room of like 100 people in there who were all kind of really excited about that. And since we launched the website, we've had um, numerous emails from people who want to pursue their own projects and they're kind of looking for um, what to do next. The first phase of our website, which is what's live right now, is really the design catalog. Uh, But there's a new um, set of pages that are going to be released in the next couple of weeks. Not sure when this podcast is coming out, but maybe by then it will already be live. uh, That really starts to get into a more guide-focused aspect that takes you through the different steps, helps you uh, look at analyzing um, the capacity of your own home uh, or a house you're looking for in the real estate market to see what could potentially fit in it. Um, talks you through kind of looking at the zoning of your house, the different scenarios of whether you're going to live in the house where you were renovated. So it's a whole new kind of guide focus section that is 
imminently going to be released, which is pretty exciting. Because one of the things that once we released design, the design catalog, everyone was asking us is like, okay, this is great. I want to do this. Now what? Uh, yeah, um, exactly. So I guess that that's my next question. So, you, you know, you, you've said the guide or step-by-step. So are you guys putting together like an Ikea level instruction manual for, you know, my I mean, time bungalow to turn into a, a fourplex? Like how, how does that work? What is that step-by-step process? Like? So not quite an Ikea bungalow. I think the goal is really to get you from, uh, I'm interested in this to, is this likely feasible uh, on my property? Um, how can I get a kind of approximation of what is realistic to fit within it? And then like, who do I hire to help me get this done? Uh, because I think zoning and working in the city is inherently a very messy and complicated process. And we really encourage people to hire a team that knows what they're doing that can guide them through the process. And so we want to provide the information to do like early feasibility checks, um, ideally at some point soon, uh, preliminary pricing um, based on a kind of construction catalog that's coming out um, and help people understand the kind of scope of what they're taking on, what the steps are to get there. Um, and some of the complexities because doing a renovation project or any construction project is a lot more complicated if you aren't familiar with uh, the different roles and responsibilities of the people who are participating in it and what it actually means to renovate an existing house. So the goal is to get you from the kind of spark that you're interested to arm you with the knowledge to put together a team um, to take your project all the way through the end. So... When you examine like the entire supply chain of doing this from start to finish, it sounds like, you know, your group would probably play or, or individuals that, that you're working with would probably play a pretty substantial role in planning, architecture, design, like with the at so soft costs phase of the, the supply chain with the municipal government. Um, what is it like doing that process right now with this being a relatively new policy? And then um, once that's completed, what's it like actually delivering these projects all the way through, finding contractors? The la- are there further bottlenecks um, appearing in the in the labor and um, construction supply chain, um, financing issues? Like, um, what does the scope look like in the actual execution of projects now that this has been passed? Yeah, I mean, we it's it's funny. I, this the the. Um, Catalyst for, I think, this entire research project was actually um, a building that that my boss um, is is constructing and has been um, planning. Um, They broke ground on it before the the multiplex bylaw passed, so they went through the entire process of kind of um, site-specific approvals uh, to get this built. And um, a lot of the challenges with it are... um, uh, you know, th- that was also through COVID. So be mindful of the the specific um, challenges at the time, but also things on the supply chain side of, you know, getting an electrical panel for a building with four units in it is like this bizarrely challenging, very specific um, thing that you have to do. And I think going through that process alone was like, why is this so complicated? Um, it's as complicated to do this for a four unit project as it might be for a you know hundred unit 
project. I mean, not not exactly, but the 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 economies of scale are not there on a lot of those types of things. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's a chronic shortage of of, of trades, uh, and um, you know, I think in the city of Toronto, if you're doing concrete formwork uh, for a tower, you've got an economy of scale supporting you. If you're doing anything else, uh, you just run into lots of supply chain issues. Um, but you know, the 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 bylaw passed in well, when was it that it came into effect? June 14th of this year. So on the planning side, the city is still you know just going to start to receive these these um, proposals and and uh, submissions now um which means that projects probably aren't you know shoveling the ground with these new permissions until you know later this year or yeah, next like spring six like it's really now, like we're really at the infancy of a new way of doing things um, i think the other thing that's important to remember is although uh the permissions have changed and we are now allowed to build more units as a right um None of this is new or particularly radical. Like people have been converting single family houses into multi-unit housing for a really long time. And in fact, illegally converted houses in Toronto make up some of the most affordable units that exist, which is probably part of the reason that they still exist. Um, and no one is sort of like calling the inspectors on them. But the process of building a multi-unit house really isn't or converting it really isn't that different than adding a secondary suite, which you've been able to do for a really long time. Um, it's just made it easier uh, and easier to do as a right. And so hopefully that streamlines the process of something that people have been interested in and actively doing for a long time uh, and makes it easier for them to do that. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's, it's an excellent point that you made. And there's a couple of pieces that I want to mention on it. So you know, because I think that we naturally are going to face a little bit of nimbyism as a result of anything new. Um, but you mentioned this has been been done for a long time. And actually, probably, I think one of the most famous figures in architecture period, and, and certainly one of the most famous figures in Toronto's history of architecture, Jane Jacobs, w- was, you know, obsessed with the annex, which is a neighborhood in which what you're describing is incredibly common. Like all of those houses are multiplexed uh, i would say or a lot of those have there and now don't, don't get me wrong they're all old beautiful old victorian they mans. were yeah. and yeah, now they they're were, actually right. being i mean there's was an interesting study a few years ago um that was in the toronto star that actually did a map of downtown toronto and the population changes in neighborhoods and we have had core downtown neighborhoods that are like amazingly located next to great resources where their populations have actually been decreasing in recent years, which points to, I think, a real opportunity in the kind of existing infrastructure to hold more people. You just need to get them there. Yeah. And and I think, um, I think actually some neighborhoods are are losing um, units. Some of that's because, you know, we're getting high rises that are taking out large amounts and there's a gap before they add their new amounts but there's also a lot of rich people buying rooming houses exactly. and converting them back yeah. into single yeah. family homes it's true yeah and if it, it fascinates me the piece that you mentioned about um the illegally built units because i've always felt that i put i put a tweet out on this um you know i, I felt that when this 
Paul, like I know, I literally know contractors, a couple of them who've been like, oh, it, fourplexes are legal now. Like I'm just going to convert two of my buildings to fourplexes and they've started. And it's like, th- no, that's not how, and they know it's their contractors. It's all going to be done to code and whatever. Right. Like, and we can discuss all of what those components are like, you know, it's mostly ingress, egress and fire stuff. But um, I've, I've honestly felt like one of the big impacts that will never be seen is that when you make something as of right, and it becomes the interpretation that this thing is allowed, people just kind of start doing it. And, and now I think you've moved it from people running illegal duplexes, perhaps to running e- illegal fourplexes. Um, and I guess a lot of whether or not that ends up, you know, more of it ends up being done in like kind of gray market, let's call it than through municipal programs, like the one we're describing would really depend on how easy they, or how, how um, streamlined the execution ends up being. Um, I think, right? Like, I mean, I think that people were probably doing, people were building illegal unit conversions for a long time, partially because it's, it was complicated to go through a process to yeah. do it legally. And obviously we uh, want to advocate for safe, uh, dignified housing for our people and not tell people totally. to make things that aren't great for you to live in. And I think providing a venue for people to do this legally all of a sudden um, opens up the opportunity that those plans are being reviewed by plan examiners. They're um, being visited by inspectors who add a kind of like layer of safety to the units. There are some like crazy apartments that have been built with like walls that are like cut through doors that you see on Craigslist. Like it's the wild west out there and uh, not not necessarily for the best, I think. Why are those units always listed on Craigslist? That, that's, that's a dimly <laughs> lit, get, horrible picture. They get reported on any other Yeah, platform. not not so inviting. I want to just jump back to something uh, Conrad had said, just just with the economies of scale and how difficult that's been. From a, from a financing side of things, that's also something that um, we've looked at as, as one of the major barriers here is that you know, there's since this is new and and some in in a lot of cases it's hard to get these to pencil out for for some people. You know, I think there's there's going to have to be some some strides made on on new financial products to to support this kind of stuff because the traditional financial products that exist in the market right now don't. Um, and I and I I think that's probably a reason that maybe there hasn't been maybe there's a lot of interest but not a lot of adoption similar to the the numbers with the laneway suites and and whatnot that we've seen, right? I mean, it was it was a frenzy. Laneway suites and garden suites were, were the buzzword for for you know a few months, and then we saw a lot of people apply for permits. And then Dan and I have spoken to a lot of those those builders or, or would be builders because they haven't built something yet. They've got a company based around a product that they haven't actually executed on yet. Um, so you know, I think that's a a challenge that that needs to be solved. And I guess that leads me to. My next question is, what are, I mean, it sounds like this is just riddled with with challenges, right? As as with anything is in its infancy, as, as you said, uh, Samantha. So what are the biggest challenges outside of, you know, the financing stuff and, and the labor stuff? Like, like, what are like some of the nuanced challenges? Like, you know, is it utilities? For instance, if you've got, you know, one, a single family home, and now all of a sudden there's five units on that piece of property, and that happens four or five more times on a block is that going to pull too much from that 
like that, you know, electrical circuit that, that's feeding that neighborhood? Is that going to pull too much on the sewer capacity that's feeding that neighborhood? Transportation, you know, what like congestion? So just just throwing a lot of stuff at you right now. But I'm just wondering, what are the biggest challenges that that have been brought up to to the two of you? Sam, I'm going to just take the first half of that because there, we went we went far there. Um, on financing, I think there's there's a few things that have happened that I think are really exciting. One is, I mean, you know, this was all about approving as of right permissions for four units. But the city also at the same council session when they increased development charges on housing by uh, like almost 50 percent, they exempted projects of up to four units from any development charges. And that move, like I still get goosebumps thinking about it, that move overnight changed the math on on this. Um, I think that means that, you know, multiplexes uh, pencil better than many other types of housing housing supply now um the the move that the city made on dc charges is 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 momentous and really helpful for this and and very appropriate when you consider the scale that we're talking about um the other thing is that the you know the the federal government on its uh, on the gst and presumably when the province announces the specific language for it is also tied to buildings with a minimum of four units. So that's what's interesting is the DC charge exemption in Toronto goes up to four and the HST exemption starts at four. So if you're trying to build a triplex or a fiveplex, uh, you've got a disincentive. Fourplexes, you've got policy really aligning with you. Um, so I think I just, those are two really, ma- really kind of almost magical, interesting things that have happened that really incentivize this. Um, two big challenges out of the way in a sense. Uh, the second half of your question on, you know, what's next, what are other things that we need to be looking at and thinking about? Uh, I know Sam's got, got a long list. <laughs> Great. Let's hear I it. mean, just on the financial aspect, something that I would love to see, which you're starting to see actually in BC is the ability to do strata title, uh, these properties. And the government has gone about, trying to simplify the process to condo-wise properties, which I think for our co-ownership is huge. Um, but what we're really missing is the ability to rationalize mortgages. Um, and so if you're wanting to buy into a property within a group of people, you are ultimately on the hook for the entire mortgage, uh, regardless of if, you're, if you own the whole thing collectively as a group, which makes that a much more inherently risky proposal for people who are interested in this from a multiple ownership standpoint. And so I would love to see some movement in either the credit unions, which is probably the most likely place for it to happen, of putting together a new mortgage product that's specifically for multiple owners looking at living within a property. Um, Because I think until then, it's complicated, like legally, financially, uh, to set yourself up in a way in which you are protected um, when you pursue a project like this uh, from an ownership standpoint. Obviously, from a rental, it's a bit of a different calculation. But uh, in terms of the barriers of things that are left, um, the cost of construction, interest rates, all of those are huge things. I actually mm-hmm. think uh, utilities are a really complicated one. Um 
the way that our permissions are written for different um, different sectors of what it takes to build don't actually align necessarily with each other. So in a house, if you're looking at HVAC, if you have up to three units, you can share air, but if you have four units, you need separated air systems. Um, at five units, you all of a sudden are in a different world in terms of life safety protections that you're required to. There are ones at two units. And so navigating uh, the restrictions and sort of like levels up and what it means as you add units is really complicated. Uh, hydro, I think, is one that is going to be... Um, Although they're recently, I think, announced that they're going to let you have more than one meter in a house, which is going to make a huge impact. Because uh, I think until recently, they would only put one meter per property. And so that required people to go up to 400 amp service, which is a huge financial investment, um, particularly, particularly as we look towards electrification in the climate crisis realm, um, how we're going to actually power these houses, I think is a is a really big question if we want to move in the kind of environmentally friendly route, because it requires a lot more electricity. Um, and I think hopefully the city and hydro are doing studies uh, to look at the capacity of the grid and where there is capacity to upgrade to 400 amps, um, make that progress smoother because it doesn't sound like it's the easiest one right now. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I, and I think a lot of this nuance gets lost in um, in kind of the, you know, you hear, oh, fourplex everything. And, you know, f soon we're going to be calling Forest Hill, fourplex hill, but like you don't really, you don't really catch um, how difficult and how many obstructions still exist. The one that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up here um, and I know Conrad, this one might strike a chord with you because it has something especially there's there's one component that I think you're especially outspoken about, but construction costs that you mentioned, how much more work is there or that can be done before we discuss the number of staircases in a certain size of building? Um, how many how many uh, cha or what changes could be made to the building code to 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 advance this a little bit further? because the the biggest, obstruction so you know from the cost structure our, our audience is mostly investors um that want to build this kind of housing like they they see what conrad just described as you know yeah okay i don't get the economies of scales of being a high-rise developer but i get a 30 to sixty thousand dollar arbitrage on development charges that i'm i'm um i'm i'm leasing the same unit right i'm I'm, le I'm putting a unit out into the market i'm leasing it at the same amount that i could the condo could be leased at i'm now increasingly incentivized compared to a developer to create that unit. And now we're seeing developers decrease the number of sales, you know, down, down like two thirds from on a year over year basis, which in a couple of years will be a decrease in housing starts. But the, the, the headwinds are land costs are too high and the market seems to be doing its thing on that where by decreasing these costs, but construction costs are too high. Is there work that can be done on the new side in the building code and on the retrofit side and in, in what's allowable or, or innovations um, to make this more cost effective. If that ends up being okay, policy bottleneck has been solved. The next challenge is how do we make this actually economical so that I can provide affordable housing units to the people um, that need them. There you go, Conrad. You get to talk about building code after all. We yeah. say best for last. So blow us away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I I have to be conscious here because 
the code change is, is really like there's an accusation that's been made that the code change is a compromise between safety and affordability. And that that's really false because I think you should maybe provide a little context as to what yeah, code change okay, you're I should back, about. back up here. All right, <laughs> let's go start from the beginning. Um, I've uh, been involved with building code research, looking at um, uh, a building code barrier that is Canada is basically the most restrictive country in the world, except for Uganda, um, in requiring two exit stairs in any building that's a multi-unit building. Uh, most other countries uh, require, have allow you to go to a higher building height before you need two exit stairs. And... Um, there's just better ways to achieve the equivalent or even better fire safety performance than having two exit stairs. Um, and so that, you know, that work is going on and I think we're hopefully going to see those changes in the coming years. Um, but that's actually really about design flexibility. Um, you know, it's not a compromise between safety and, and cost. It's just about um, providing the flexibility to design better buildings in a sense, better unit layouts. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm apprehensive around sort of talking about building code changes as related to construction cost. I think that's a very dangerous conversation to have. Yeah. We should never change the building code to make housing cheaper. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, this, the building code that existed when housing costs were $200 a square foot is the same building code that exists after COVID and supply chain crises where it's $400 a square foot. Right. And so really the issue of construction cost is just one of, um, of labor supply and or supply and demand. Um, and I think that, you know, goes into a, a long discussion of um, how do we increase our labor supply with an economist. that <laughs> I am not prepared to have. Um, <laughs> But just to really detach that the building code change and, and you know, the, the thing that we're talking about is about building better floor plans, um, better unit layouts, equally as safe, uh, is it really not about construction cost? So the efficient, the, the increased efficiency or the innovation really is what we're describing here. It's, it's getting more units in a better configuration rather than cutting corners on materials or safety measures to, yep. to protect costs. Uh, it's an excellent point. I hadn't really thought about it. And sometimes it's not even more units. It's just better units. It's right. units with yes. better access to light, um, with windows on more than one side, with better ventilation. Uh, we're so limited by the exit requirements on small lots that you can end up with some really strange, not very pleasant uh, units. And so this code change, I think, will actually go a long way in increasing the flexibility of designers to increase the quality of the housing that's being produced. Yeah. One, of the, one of the most easy ways to explain this is, is um, with the fourplex permissions, most of the designs we'll see without this code change, i.e. currently um, compliant, are going to be what you call stacked townhouses. And so that's each unit has its own front door and you go in and if you live on the upper levels, you're going up one or two staircases to get there. If we're trying to create a housing supply that's you know suitable for people that are aging in place um, uh, and create an accessible housing supply, uh, this is going to be, that's a really bad outcome. Um, whereas the, the code change would allow you to build these buildings, um, you know, with a unit on each floor, provide an elevator, um, and just make that actually pencil in a, in a competitive way 
um, and make more accessible units by doing so. Yeah, I love uh, I love hearing the the countries that were so obscurely compared to like Toronto or Canada and Uganda, and I there, there weren't we we had the second slowest permitting process to the Slovak Republic, I believe. Yeah. So it's nice to know that we're in some great company there. Um, in an effort to uh, to keep you guys on time for your next meetings, why don't we wrap it there? I know we've got a ton more to talk about, and, and maybe it's worth having you guys back on when the next set of documents in in this project you guys have going on is is released. Um, before we head out, Conrad and Samantha, thanks so much. Anything that you want to leave us or our audience with, and, and maybe if not, if there's nothing, no closing statements, at least tell us where uh, where we can find out more about you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really exciting project that we're finding a lot of enthusiasm for and um, really encourage you to go take a look at the website, just rehousing.ca. We're recently on Instagram, which is also rehousing.ca. Wow, that's a follow (laughs) for sure. Um, But uh, yeah, I think there's exciting things coming up and progress that we're making and trying to uh, really be more accessible in the information that's provided and uh, arm and empower people to pursue projects like this because it's a great opportunity to take some agency into your hands and participate in the creation of housing. Love it. One of the things I'll add is, um, you know, when we were doing this work at one point, we actually had a consultation with the city of Toronto's planning team um, and it was interesting to then see the, the, the way the planning team does outreach activities with the community. Uh, you know, they send out surveys, they hold Zoom meetings, they, they go on throughout um, parts of the city and kind of have meetings. And the Ehan team is continuing with other work now. And, uh, you know, if you want to be active and support uh, housing reforms, um, they are actively like asking for f- public feedback. Um, and uh, and that's actually really encouraging just to see that that's kind of available. So, you know, please make use of it. Amazing. Uh, go follow Rehousing on Instagram. Go check out the website. We'll have uh, information about both uh, Conrad and Samantha in the link in the show notes. Guys, thanks so much for the time today. Looking forward to our next conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Awesome conversation. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. I I feel like this is one of those things where it really does need to be seen visually because it's like design. And we can can describe it in vivid, vivid detail. You're pretty good at describing the houses, but uh, (laughs) I'm I'm certainly not. It's like there's a house and then there's um, There's a a roof on it, a brick maybe. (laughs) But you have to check out the website because I can't even really like it. It's as a resource is like you would pay somebody so much money to make these plans for you. And like, as a thought experiment, if you're an investor going out to see what can be done with houses, because we've always maintained that the way that you're going to be creating value as a real estate investor by increasing your income, increasing the value of a property and helping to solve for a very big social problem, which is the housing crisis um, is through adding units to existing dwellings within the existing square footage of that house and they've made it exceptionally easy to do that in a very very cool visual guide that's yeah. only going to be growing so make sure you follow them on instagram which you mentioned and check out rehousing.ca um and then yeah. give them a shout ask them some some for some uh, advice and questions because they're both great people yeah this is just awesome one of those there's just one of those things where it's like if you're an investor looking for that edge 
to beat out the competition. It's stuff like this that, that this is it right here, right? It's knowing these type of people. It's finding these types of resources, being on the forefront of this kind of stuff. And I'm really excited to have them back on. You know, there's still a lot to unfold here. We got to figure out pricing and mortgage products. We got to figure out um, the construction of these things. And, and that's the next phase, right? The construction catalog. So. Uh, as soon as that's out, we'll have them back on to chat about it. But uh, in the meantime, as Dan said, reach out to them, get as much information as you can. They are out here doing God's work because this is all free stuff online for you and I to benefit from. So go utilize it and uh, and send them a thank you email and, and send us a thank you email as well while you're at it. Or just leave us a good review. There we go. That's it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.